Uh, for many years, he taught at the University of Chicago. He's this world-renowned scholar. His name was Dr. Martin Marty. And his specialty was church history. Well, one day in class, a student asked him, Dr. Marty, where was the Garden of Eden? And Dr. Marty answered, 302 East Elm, Atlanta, Georgia. Well, that kind of caught the class by surprise. And the student said, uh, Professor, I don't think you understood. I, I thought the Garden of Eden was somewhere over there in the Middle East. And Dr. Marty said, yeah, for Adam and Eve, it was somewhere over there in the Middle East. But for me, the Garden of Eden was at 302 East Elm, Atlanta, Georgia. And then he told this story. He said he was 10 years old and he loved ice cream. I mean, he just really loved ice cream. Well, one day he heard the bell of the ice cream truck coming through his neighborhood and he couldn't resist. He said his mother was over visiting the neighbor at the time, but she'd left her purse sitting in the living room. And little Martin knew that his mother's purse was off limits. It was sacred territory. He was not allowed to get in his mother's purse without his mother's per permission. But the situation was urgent. I mean, the ice cream man is driving down the street, and he had to act swiftly if he didn't want to miss out on this wonderful opportunity. And so little Martin thought to himself, I, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so he reached inside his mother's purse. He fumbled around. He grabbed a bunch of coins. He went outside and purchased himself this treat, a two-scoop vanilla cone with sprinkles on top. He said, never in my life have I eaten anything that tasted so good. Now, he finished it pretty quickly, and with the last lick of ice cream, he heard his mother walking through the door. And immediately, little Martin knew that he was in trouble. No time to clean up. All he could do was hide. So he hid himself in the back closet. As soon as his mother came through the door, she called out his name, and there was no answer. She's thinking to herself, I know he's in the house somewhere. Why isn't he not responding? So she goes walking through the house, and she can't find him. And at last, in kind of a hunch, she decided to open the closet door. There was little Martin with ice cream and sprinkles all over his face. And his mother asked him, Martin, Martin, what have you done? Dr. Martin Marty said that day was my fall, my fall in the Garden of Eden. Where was your Garden of Eden? Where was your moment of truth when you realized that you crossed the line, you did something you were not supposed to do, and in your sin you realized that no closet would ever be dark enough to hide and cover the guilt and the shame that you felt? See, we're like two little kids playing in a mud puddle and splashing around all day and making this big, big mess, and then it comes time to go home. And that's when it hits us. We have a problem. How are we going to get rid of all this mud? Can't get inside the house with all this mud on us. And yet we realize, much as we'd like to be able to help each other out, each one of us is covered with too much dirt. And it's at that point that we begin to realize something really important. Somebody else is going to make us clean. Somebody else has to make us clean. This is not something we can do for ourselves. So it is with our sin. There's only one who can forgive. There's only one who can make things right again. And that one is Jesus. And in order to make everything right, he had to die on a cross. And that's why the Apostle Paul says here, when he came to the city of Corinth, he came with one main focus to his preaching. He said, I came to preach Christ and him crucified. Because without the cross, we have no hope. So listen to how he explains this to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says when it comes to people, there's really only two ways to describe them. And it's not Jew and Gentile, and it's not wise and foolish, and it's not the educated and uneducated, no. When it comes to people, there's only two categories that really matter. You're either saved or you're not. There are those of us who've recognized our sin, and because of that sin, we have made this alliance with Jesus. And now as a result, our lives are being blessed because of what he did for us on the cross. We are now in the process of being saved. 
But there are those people whose lives are still in peril because they have not yet made that alliance with Jesus. And that's why Paul, here in this scripture, trying to emphasize, you've got to understand, there are some things that only God can do for you, and you've got to turn to him for help. So to illustrate that and to emphasize that, verse 19, he begins to quote from the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He writes, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate, or I, it literally says, I will nullify. When those words were first spoken back in the days of Isaiah, the nation of Judah was in trouble, big trouble. They were being threatened by the mighty Assyrians. And everybody in the nation of Judah knew we're no match for them. So the best and brightest of the day, all the statesmen and politicians, came, they all came together with King Hezekiah. Everybody put their heads together trying to use their brains and their ingenuity, trying to come up with some kind of a plan. And they figured that the only way to get themselves out of this dilemma was to make an alliance with Egypt. And maybe that way our enemy, our Syrians, when they see that we've made this pact with this nation, when they see who's going to join forces with us, maybe they'll pause and want to pull back and think, no, maybe we better not attack. I mean, it seemed to be the only way to solve the problem, and yet the plan backfired. Rather than making the situation better, it ended up making the situation worse. And it wasn't until several chapters later, you see King Hezekiah come to the temple and he literally falls on his face and he basically prays, God, without you we perish. Only you can help. Only you can save. And he did save them. You remember how? One angel, one night, destroys 185,000 of the Syrian soldiers and suddenly the threat is gone. See, all the experts of the day, all the king's advisors were no help at all to Hezekiah. Only God could deliver them from this evil. And Paul's saying the same thing's true for us. We are broken people living in a, in a broken down world. And all the experts of the day are never going to be able to turn things around for us. Our only hope of being saved is when we turn to the Lord. So that's why he writes here in verse 20, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Meaning, where are the experts we're turning to and we're leaning on? Do you not recognize that not a one of those experts can do anything to change the human art? It's only God who can do that. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. Now get that, it's not the foolishness of preaching. It's not the act of preaching, it's what's preached. It's the message. It's the message about the cross. It pleased God through the foolishness of what he was doing on the cross. That's what's going to save those who trust what he's done there at the cross. Dr. Francis Collins is a highly regarded scientist. He's received all kinds of awards because of the revolutionary contributions he made in the field of genetics. And some of you know this. You've read his book. Some of you are aware of his research and all his insights into the human DNA. And Dr. Francis Collins, because he is so highly regarded, he'll travel all over the world giving these lectures. And many times when he's giving a talk, he'll tell this parable. And it's like a word of caution. Here's Dr. Francis Collins says, listen, science is important, very important. Much of what we enjoy in the world today has come about because of the discoveries that have been made in this field of study. So don't ever downplay the significance of science. It's done so much to improve the quality of our life in this world. But Dr. Francis Collins is also a Christian. And when he gives these talks, he, he, he tells this parable because he says, listen, science is great and it's done a lot of wonderful things for us, but you also need to understand that the field of science has its limitations. That there are some problems that the field of science is never going to be able to solve. That there are some questions that the field of science is never going to be qualified to answer. And then to illustrate that, he tells this parable. Real simple story. Here's this man. He's curious about the ocean. 
you know, what lies beneath this vast body of water? What kind of life will you find in this mysterious world that we know so little about? So every day he goes out in the water. Every day he goes out to do some research. Every day he comes out and he casts his nets and begins to catch all kinds of creatures. And he starts to record his findings. And Dr. Collins says the net that he's using has a mesh the size of three inches, meaning those tiny squares where the, the lines of the net intersect create these holes about three inches big, which they're small enough that he can pretty much catch anything that swims by. So for months and months, he catches all kinds of exotic creatures, big and small, and he takes notes every day. And after months and months of doing this, he says, hey, after many trips out here in the water, after much study, after much thought and reflection, after many experiments, I have finally come to this conclusion. There are no deep sea fish smaller than three inches. Is he correct? No. How did he miss so much of what lives down there in the deep blue sea? It's the net he's using. His net was not designed to catch anything smaller than three inches. Well, Dr. Francis Collins is telling this parable as a word of warning. Listen, science is great, but it's not the only way to measure what matters in this world. It's not the only way to evaluate the truth of this world in which we live. I mean, if that's the only net you're using to try to figure out what makes this world tick, you're going to miss a lot of important stuff. That net you're using, the net of science, it's a good net, but it's got holes in it. It's not designed to catch a lot of what you need to see and know. It's not designed to catch what you need to be aware of. And I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to emphasize here. Human wisdom is a wonderful thing. Uh, we need to go to school. We need to learn things. It'll benefit you in many ways. But you also need to realize that human wisdom has its limitations. There are some things that only God can see. There's some things that only God can explain. There's some things that only God can make sense of. And if you don't have his revelation, if you're not receiving his wisdom, you're going to be lost. So verse 22, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, whether Jew or Gentile, when people... Look at the cross, not from a human point of view, but when they begin to realize what God was doing at the cross, now they begin to see that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, his power and wisdom to save. You know, many times in our English language, we'll create these oxymorons. We'll put two words together that seem to contradict each other. You know, jumbo shrimp, hell's angels, small crowd, a civil war. Man, if that isn't absurd, a civil war. Well, so it was to the ears of the Jews and Gentiles in the city of Corinth when the Apostle Paul comes along preaching, Christ crucified. Wait a minute. How can you take those two words, those two concepts, and put them together? Christ, it's a title. It means the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the one sent to the world to be our leader. He's the one sent to the world to be our hero, our champion. He's the one who came to save. We're talking about the most glorious person in all the universe. And how can you put that word with crucifixion? Because we're talking about something utterly despicable. I mean, to be crucified, in that day and time, to be crucified mean, meant that you were defeated by the powers of Rome. You were put on trial and you lost. You didn't have the wisdom. You didn't have the ex eloquence to plead your case, to win your case. You weren't able to persuade the powers of Rome to show you justice. You were put on trial and found one and you failed. And then you died. And you didn't just die. You got crushed. You were humiliated. You were executed in the most dehumanizing way possible. I mean, it's the most horrible way to die. And the crucifixion was reserved only for the very worst of criminals and rebels. So here you got the Messiah, the most glorious person in all the universe, and crucified. When we're talking about executing those we consider to be worthless, how can you take these two words and put them together? Because God did. You see, at the cross, we realize there's this dilemma. There's this divine dilemma that only God himself can resolve. 
How can God be just and punish the sin and deal with the evil of this world and yet at the same time rescue and save and justify those who committed the sin? He resolved that dilemma at the cross. Maybe, maybe in order for us to appreciate what Jesus did on the cross, we need to ask ourselves this question, what is hell for you? I mean, in your mind, what is the most horrible thing that could ever happen to you and what would you do to keep that from happening? Is hell being poor? Is hell being ugly? Is hell being fat? Is hell being unloved, underappreciated? What is hell for you? And it's that fear of hell, that, that fear of hell that just drives and compels you to seek a savior. And yet many times the savior that we're seeking is not Jesus. If your definition of hell is being unmarried, then you're looking for a spouse to be your savior. If your definition of hell is being lonely, then you're looking for a friend or for a group or for a pet to be your savior. Who is it that you would do anything for because you believe what they say, what they offer, is gonna spare you from the most horrible thing you could ever experience? I mean, you are convinced they can save you from what you consider to be hell. And then you've gotta ask yourself as you surrender yourself to that thing, to that person, do they really save? Do they really give you what you need? Do they really provide what you most desire? No. And the truth being pointed out in the scripture, anytime you turn to anything or anyone other than Jesus to be your savior, you're headed for a life that's gonna be filled with heartache and disappointment. This really became clear to me a number of years ago. I read a book called Addiction and Virtue. And in the book, it tells about this paramedic. And one night he, he was called to the apartment of a drug addict. He said as soon as he walked into the room, there's a drug addict sitting in the corner, just totally trashed, shivering, totally unresponsive, near death. The apartment just covered with garbage. I mean, syringes, spoons, needles, all kinds of drug paraphernalia, not one bit of food. And the paramedic said, as soon as I saw that, I got scared. I became alarmed. I, I felt terrified. And the reason he felt that way, he says, because for the first time I thought, I began to realize that I was beginning to understand what worship looks like. Here's this man, here's this drug addict who's so desperate that he's willing to give anything, even his own life, just so he can have those drugs, just so he can have that feeling, just so he can have that high. And the paramedic said, as I'm looking at this, I began to realize, whoa, you need to be careful what you worship. You see, for that drug addict, hell is trying to face life without a needle in your arm. And he couldn't do that. He thought, only those drugs can spare me from the stress and pain of life. Only those drugs can make me feel good again. Only those drugs can make things right again. And yet the truth is, here he was surrendering himself to something that was killing him, not saving him. Listen, we're all devoted to something. And sooner or later, we all surrender to something. We surrender to our fear. We surrender to our pride. We surrender to our lust. We surrender to our addictions. We surrender ourselves to the opinions of others or the expectations of others. And yet every time we do that, we're surrendering to something that weakens and destroys. It doesn't save and transform. The Bible says here, why not surrender yourself to the one who has devoted himself to saving us? You see, only Jesus understands what hell really is. Hell is being separated from God. And there's nothing more horrible than that. And so to make sure that we never experience that trauma, that's why Jesus is on the cross. He is going through hell for us. So instead of experiencing hell, we can experience heaven instead. Did you ever notice as you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're watching Jesus and watching all the times he prays? He prays a lot. And have you ever noticed in all the prayers that Jesus prays, there's only one time, only one time when he's talking to God, when he does not refer to him as father. 
And it's that time when he's praying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that day, that moment, he's forsaken, so we won't be. That day, that moment, he loses his relationship with the Father so we can gain that connection, gain that personal connection with God so now we can begin to know him and trust him as the good Father he is. He's forsaken so that we'll be remembered forever. There on the cross, he's taking the punishment for all our sins so we'll not only be forgiven, but now we can live forever in glorious fellowship with God and never ever again have to be separated from him. Sooner or later, you surrender yourself to something. Don't surrender to your greed. Don't surrender to your pride. Do not surrender yourself to your sin. No. Surrender yourself to Jesus and discover a life. I mean, a real life that is really worth living. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. God, may we cling to him. And may we cling to what he has done for us. God, may we find our hope and our peace and our joy in him. And I pray for this in Jesus' name.